he called and asked if we could get together. We hadn't seen each other for several years, so we had some catching up to do. I knew through the grapevine that he'd recently lost his job after more than a dozen years due to some office politics. But when we sat down over lunch, he told me that that wasn't the reason that he wanted to get together. He then told me that for years, he'd battled depression. It wasn't something he shared openly because he said most people just wouldn't understand. Just a week earlier, his doctor had recommended a change in medication, so he switched with what turned out to be serious consequences. His mood began sinking immediately, and one evening, just a couple of days before we had lunch, he felt so low that he asked his wife not to leave the house, not even to go to the grocery store. At the end of our time together, I prayed with him. We talked and we texted several more times that week. A week later, we got together again, and he told me that he was feeling much better, that the old medication was taking hold. He was starting to feel like himself again, but clearly he was rattled. I've been discouraged before. I've even had a number of times, or a time a number of years ago, when I became quite anxious about something I was facing. I didn't know what to do, and so I went to see a counselor to help me navigate my emotions and the circumstances that I was in. But I've never been as low as my friend was that week. Mental illness can be frightening. Some have told me that they've been so low they can hardly get out of bed, that even the simplest of tasks seems impossible. A friend I have who struggles with bipolar disorder described to me once how he could stay up almost for a week, for days, I mean 24 hours a day, writing furiously what would become his Ph.D. thesis, only to crash and barely be able to get out of bed the next week. What makes all of this worse, some have told me, is that few want to talk about it, especially in the church. I've had people tell me that they could never tell any of their Christian friends what's going on because they know they'd be judged. I heard about a pastor of a large church who went through several seasons of anxiety and depression, and on one occasion, the darkness flattened him physically, emotionally, and spiritually. He did what he could to keep going, trying to do his job as if nothing was wrong, but for weeks, he barely got any sleep, he lost weight, he couldn't concentrate in conversations, he found no comfort from reading the Bible, and the only prayers that he could get out were help and please end this. But still, he didn't tell anyone. Why? because he was afraid that if he did, he'd lose his job. Who, after all, would want to be pastored, he said, by a damaged person? Did you know, though, that 25% of Americans will struggle with some form of mental illness this year? Now, for many, it won't last long. A few weeks of depression, a couple of anxious months, the feelings that come, and then they go. But others experience chronic, debilitating mental health challenges. For them, it's much more serious and life-altering. 25%. That's one in four of us who are directly affected, with many more indirectly touched each year by mental illness. So when someone is struggling close to you, even if you're not the one struggling, it can be all-consuming. What makes this so challenging is that in many circles, talking about mental illness is taboo. It's not something that most of us feel comfortable talking about. So many people... Some even close to us suffer in silence. You might be surprised to hear about some very famous Christians who have struggled with mental illness, people like Martin Luther and Charles Spurgeon and Mother Teresa, and also characters in the Bible, people like David and Moses and Elijah and Jeremiah, all experienced seasons of severe depression. I want to tell you about one, Elijah. He was once pitted in a spiritual battle against the prophets of Baal, 
1 Kings chapters 18 and 19. And the two sides had made a bet. So they each built altars out of stone, piled some wood on it, and then each took a bull that they were going to offer as a sacrifice. But the deal is, no matches, no gasoline. They had to call on their God to set the thing on fire. It was an appeal to God to light the fire of the altar. The prophets of Baal went first, and for an entire day they prayed, they danced, they cried out in loud voices, and nothing happened. And then it was Elijah's turn. He did something that's astounding. He took jars of water and poured it over everything until it was soaking wet. And then he prayed to, the, to God, and it says, The fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in a trench he dug around the altar. It was an amazing, dramatic demonstration of the power of God, and Elijah was thrilled. Yet almost immediately, he found himself in a difficult place. And the reason is that the royal family, who'd thrown their lot in with Baal, saw what had happened, and they went after Elijah. We're told Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. Remember, he's just a day removed from a massive triumph, and then he's asking God to take him away. God did something different, though. He sent some food, he encouraged him, and sent him back to finish the job. Now, not every biblical leader recovered quite so quickly as Elijah did. Jeremiah suffered from depression for much of his life. Job came close to taking his life. And even Paul expressed great anxiety as he went about his work. Last week, I told you that we'd begun a series this May that uh, we've called I Could Use Some Help With, and it's designed to provide help with some important challenges that we face in the modern world, a world the ancient readers of the Bible could never have imagined. In the last few weeks, we've talked about managing our time, being wise about technology, coping with loneliness, and this week, we're talking about understanding mental illness. And I put this topic last because it was the one that I personally know the least about and needed the most time for which to prepare. Let me just tell you that I'm not a psychologist, and other than a half-day seminar on premarital counseling 20 years ago, I have absolutely no specific training. By the way, that half-day seminar, that's the reason I no longer do premarital counseling, but instead refer couples to a professional. But to get ready for this week, I read three books, and more importantly, talked to four mental health professionals, three of whom go to City Church. And the question I asked each was, if you had 15 minutes to talk to City Church, what would you say? And their insights have helped shape what we're going to talk about today. Now, I want to start with a definition of mental illness, although I want to first acknowledge that all of us have physical, mental, emotional, relational, and spiritual dimensions to our life, and yet we're one unified human being. That said, a problem in any one dimension affects all the others. So, for example, a neurochemical dysfunction in the brain, the physical part of us, can result in an abnormal thoughts and feelings, the mental-emotional part of us. Likewise, a broken relationship or an experience of trauma may affect us physically, relationally, and even make it difficult for us to connect with God, the spiritual dimension of our lives. Mental illness is anything that disrupts our thinking, feelings, ability to, to relate to others, and capacity for coping with the ordinary demands of daily life. 
anything that disrupts our thinking, feelings, ability to relate to others, and the capacity for coping with the ordinary demands of life. And some of you listen to that and think, ah, I don't really understand what he's talking about. But others of you know all too well. But even if you've never been depressed or anxious or anything else, it is likely that you can sympathize at least a little bit with those who suffer. That's because all of us are on a spectrum of some sort of mental illness or another. And you may be saying, no, I'm not. Well, let me just say that all of us have a tendency toward either anxiety or depression or something else. And maybe you've never dropped so low that you've felt need for treatment. That might be in the future for you, or it may not. The point is, though, that all of us have certain tendencies, and some just have more of those. Mental illness comes in a number of categories, including anxiety and mood disorders like depression, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, autism, eating disorders, personality disorders, psychotic disorders like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. And when people struggle with these, they suffer. Mental illness often disrupts life in significant ways. And then it affects a family. It drains resources emotionally, physically, and financially. For some, it produces guilt about whether this is something they've done or failed to do. It can create confusion and anxiety while we wonder if life will ever get better. It can bring feelings of shame since some, out of ignorance, will shun us. And it can bring a spiritual crisis, making us question God and even turn away from Him for a time. In fact, for a delusional person, a spiritual crisis may actually be part of the illness. Some become spiritually confused and say things that are not just unbiblical, but downright blasphemous. They may behave in ways that are not only inappropriate, but downright sinful as well. That's why we have to be careful and give extra grace to people who are struggling. Often later, when they're in a better place, they again affirm what they once knew to be true and behave in ways that are consistent with their true selves. Remember that they're sick and don't overreact to something that someone says or even does when they're in the throes of their illness. And by the way, please do not assume that someone struggling with mental illness is more dangerous than the average person. Most mental illnesses result not in violent actions or dramatic outbursts, but in withdrawal. And sure, there are some with mental illnesses who can be disrupted, but it's extremely rare. Now, what causes mental illness? And the short answer to that question is it's complex. But we can start with the brain. The brain is an organ like our heart and lungs, and when it breaks, things get difficult. Not all mental illnesses have an organic component, but it's often a factor, particularly in things like bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. Another important cause is environmental factors, particularly trauma. Some have experienced things that few of us can imagine. Maybe they've been sexually molested or verbally or physically abused. Others just simply neglected, failing to receive the love that everyone needs and deserves. So with this kind of background, and maybe some of you have experienced that, it's no wonder that you or they struggle. It's hard to hold them fully responsible for their difficulties. We also have to acknowledge that some have made sinful choices that have contributed to their condition. When this is ca the case, it's easy for others, especially those looking on the outside, to be unsympathetic. Yeah, we are accountable for our actions, but those of us who follow Christ must also be people of grace. Because we believe in forgiveness, we must also work to alleviate suffering regardless of the cause. 
You know, what we don't do at the doors of an ER is determine whether someone is there deservingly or not. Instead, we receive the hurting and broken among us with compassion. And we need to do the same when it comes to mental illness. That means allowing those who struggle in this way some extra grace. We can't expect people who are ill to have the same skills as those who are healthy. Our expectation should be forward momentum, not perfection. Sometimes the best we can hope for in these situations is good enough. It's not uncommon for those struggling with mental illness to be trapped in problematic behavior patterns. Yes, those will need to change, but understand it will take time and we need to be patient with them in the process. There's also the issue of substance abuse. Mental illness and substance abuse often go hand in hand, and it's not clear always which one causes the other. Sometimes the abuse is a coping mechanism, and other times the abuse seems to trigger an illness that might have lain dormant otherwise. That means that mental health professionals frequently find themselves dealing with both at the same time. The final cause that's sometimes mentioned, especially in Christian circles, is demonic possession or oppression. Now, if we had more time, we could talk about this more in depth, but my own sense is that while this is possible, these situations are extremely rare. More commonly, mental illness results from other sources. Sometimes Christians appear unsympathetic to those who are struggling with mental illness. For some, it's due to a false belief that Christians shouldn't suffer. But this fails to conform to the experience of sincere Christians and directly contradicts the Bible. The world in which we live is imperfect. We live with injustice and disease. But we are promised that one day God will make all things right. Justice will be done and God will replace our imperfect bodies with new ones, including new brains that work the way that they were intended to work. But in the meantime, some of us will face mental health challenges. There are those who have a greater set of biological vulnerabilities. Those with these kinds of biological predispositions may find that they experience some kind of mental illness, although by itself that may not be enough. What it takes is a stressful life event to trigger the illness. The greater the underlying biological vulnerability, the less stress is necessary to trigger it and vice versa. So if someone is ill, struggling with one or more of these challenges, what ought they do? One common response among Christians is to say that anyone, all anyone needs is the Bible, prayer, and faith. And yes, as I'll mention in a moment, all three are crucial, but they're not always enough. When we are sick, we go to the doctor. So people with diabetes use insulin. Those with heart disease take Lipitor. And that doesn't mean that we don't pray about these things. In fact, we should and must pray about them. But we also should seek help. There's no question that God is ultimately sufficient, but he often uses others with skills that we don't have to fix our problems. Mental illness is similar to physical illness in part and needs to be treated in medically appropriate ways. So we wouldn't go up to a homeless person and say, hey, good luck, when they don't have warm clothes or a place to sleep. Neither would we say to somebody struggling with depression or anxiety, hey, let me just pray for you and then move on. Another thing we must not do is over-spiritualize the problem. Mind, body, and spirit, as I've already said, are interrelated, and each can have a profound effect on the others. Spiritual problems, outright sin, those can affect our brains and bodies. But physical problems, including chemical imbalances in the brain, affect us as well. So when we over-spiritualize mental illness, it both blames people for something that's not their fault and discourages them from seeking help. 
Now, all that said, we must pray. In fact, one mental health professional that I talked to in the last couple of weeks said, why is it much easier to request prayer for cancer or even an addiction than it is for a panic attack or bipolar disorder? Now, while prayer isn't the only activity or only strategy that we'll use, it's essential. But beyond prayer, what else can we do? One of the most effective treatment strategies, especially when environmental factors are the likely cause, is psychotherapy or counseling. There's no question that counseling can be of great help. I mentioned earlier that I've gone a couple of times to someone to help me navigate uh, several challenges I've had in my life, and each time it was extremely helpful. But often, especially for more challenging issues, the best course of action is a combination of psychotherapy or counseling and medication. Now, that's where things get controversial because some Christians are anti-medication. Now, I would never say that medication is a panacea. In fact, everything I've heard is that brain science is still in its infancy. But it can be an important tool for treating mental illness. In some cases, it may be only needed for a short time, but in other cases, it may be necessary on an ongoing basis. I'm sure it's true that some are too quick to go to the doctor and ask for a pill to take away the edge during a routine rough spot. But equally common, at least in the church, are those who refuse help when they most need it. When you have a sinus infection, most of you will take the antibiotic that's prescribed by a physician. So why would an illness in the brain be any different? If tomorrow scientists announced a cure for Alzheimer's, a disease that does damage to the brain, would you not be willing to take the pill either to prevent or heal that damage? Why then refuse to take a medication that helps relieve the suffering of mental illness? I realize the decisions here are complex, but it may be that the medication may be something that God, in His abundant provision, has made available to you. So as research suggests, the best course of action may be a combination of psychotherapy and medication. But there is one more element that can be crucial in helping the sick person get well. You see, people in crisis need community. They need friends to be connected to loving people, especially those who show them the love of Christ. If I heard anything from all four of the mental health professionals I interviewed, it was this. Don't stigmatize people with mental illness. In the popular media, people suffering from mental illness are often portrayed as frightening or funny or both. We call people crazy or psycho without thinking. In fact, we generally assume that mentally ill people are more dangerous than the general population when it's just simply not true. When this happens, people feel marginalized and dehumanized. It discourages them from seeking help, and they feel estranged from the church. We must not blame people who are struggling with mental illness. When we do this, we fail to make it safe to admit mental health struggles. That's why people with mental health issues are often reluctant to let others know that they need help. We, the people of the church, must create safe spaces. We have to allow people to wrestle in the context of a supportive community where faith is deep and honest enough to acknowledge that life in a sinful and broken world can be difficult. And we also need to acknowledge that we don't have all the answers and learn to be comfortable with the mess. We're all imperfect people. We're all working on something, and we need to give each other grace. Being a friend to someone struggling with mental illness doesn't mean you have to have all or even any of the answers. The main thing you can do is provide support and a loving presence. Sometimes you don't even need to say anything. In fact, what you might say instinctively might not help. 
So don't say you understand, because most likely you don't. But do say, this must be difficult, or simply, I'm sorry. The important thing is to show up and be there. What then does all of this say about the role of the church in supporting people with mental illness? Well, all four of the mental health professionals I talked to said the church has a crucial role. Therapy, they said, is important. Medication can play a part. But everyone struggling with mental illness needs a supportive Christian community if they're to find hope and healing. That's why the church has such an important role. We need to accept and support those with mental illness. Jesus told us to serve the least of these. That includes those struggling with mental illness. The darkness that some experience is so great that even the smallest amount of light may be enough to provide them with hope and a way out. And our desire is to be a community where the hurting and broken can find compassion and grace, a place where the weary can find rest. One of the most difficult realities with serious mental illness is that it can become chronic. In other words, it may be treatable but not curable. We don't like chronic illnesses in our culture. We want to make people take a pill or have a procedure and be done with it. But just as some people have chronically bad backs or trick knees, some will have a lifelong struggle with chronic mental illness. Years ago, I realized that as a church, we're fairly good in a short-term crisis, but we struggle to care for people with longer-term chronic situations. Whether it's an ongoing health issue or long-term unemployment or relationship challenge, financial difficulty, or in this case, mental health struggle, we struggle, and we're not unique. We all get fatigued working with people who don't seem to get better on our timetable. But, and here's the key, it's not their fault. We need to be patient. We need to learn how to come around to one another, even if it might not get better for a very long time. And with mental illness, that long time might be a lifetime. In some situations, they may never truly get over it. So we must never communicate the message that God is only patient with them for so long and then they're on their own. Getting involved with a friend or family member struggling with mental illness may cost us something, particularly time and emotional energy. Do we need to draw boundaries? Yeah, sure, sometimes. But we cannot ignore and reject the marginalized people who need the love and compassion that we can give them in their time of greatest need. And that's where I believe the church can make a difference. As I've worked on preparing my comments for today, I'm aware that we have failed some of you in the past. We may also do so in the future. But our commitment is to do better, not just with those struggling for a season, but also with those who may have a chronic battle with mental illness. One time Jesus was teaching and healing, and some men brought a friend of theirs to Jesus. He was paralyzed. And when they arrived, the house that Jesus was in was so packed, there was no room for them to bring their friend in to meet him. So they did something bold. They climbed up onto the roof of the house and they began to tear off the roof tiles until they'd made a hole large enough to lower this man in front of Jesus. And when Jesus saw the faith of this man's friends, he healed him. And that story's been stuck in my mind now for several weeks and I think it captures well the spirit of what we, the people of City Church, can do for those struggling with mental illness. We can carry our friends to Jesus where, with the tools that God has given us, through therapy and medication, and the love that we can provide to be their good friends, they can experience the healing power of God and find hope. Let's pray. 
Father, I know that there are those here today who struggle with anxiety or depression or something perhaps more serious. And I know, Father, that some of them have found it difficult to share this with others. I pray that we would be a community of love and caring and support, even for those who struggle, as we may not be able to understand. Give us love and compassion and patience and grace, and I pray, Father, that you would bring healing, healing that only you can bring, healing that involves professionals and medication and love, but also the healing that you can bring as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.